I was both horrified and heartbroken to see the news over the last 24 hours of what has transpired in Israel at the hands of terrorists. And I think that we should pray. Psalm 122 says this, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls. A number of you have been to the Holy Land, been to Israel, and it's filled with a number of wonderful Jewish people made in the image of God. It's filled with a number of wonderful Arab people made in the image of God. And God desires peace. We know that peace will never come until the Prince of Peace comes, but until that day, let's lift them up in our prayers, along with many who, in the name of Jesus, are serving in the midst of this chaos. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for the peace that only you can bring right now in Israel. God, you know who's doing what. You know the outcome. And God, we trust you in the middle of all that chaos. Lord, I pray that you would bring justice, justice that only you can provide. Lord, I pray that you would provide not only the safety of our sent ones and our mission partners in the Holy Land, but God, give them boldness. Boldness to share the light and the hope of Christ in this very difficult time. Father, be with leaders, and Lord, we just trust you in the same way we prayed for Ukraine, and Lord, we, we now lift up yet another conflict to you, and it's another reminder to say, Lord, would you come? But until that day, find us faithful. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, particularly those in Israel who are serving your name. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. That's a somber way to begin, I know. But these are serious days. That doesn't mean everything's bad. There are good things as well. Like, for instance, I think in spite of all of our differences, even in this room, this is a time we need to come together and pull for the Braves, all right? Because we've got a World Series run to make, and uh, we need you guys to pull for them. Today, we're going to look at Luke 15 as we continue this series in the parables. A lot of you will know this story. I bet you have heard this. You could repeat it to some degree. It is one of Jesus' most famous parables. And it has been painted and retold, set the music. For instance, here, here's an example of how it's been painted. Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter, 1600s, painted near the end of his life this portrait. He called it the return of the prodigal son. I don't know what detail you can see from your seat, but the younger son is embraced by the father in the story. You can see his elder brother along with the servants looking on in this tender, compassionate moment. And he, he called this painting the return of the prodigal son. And we often do that. In fact, in your Bibles, there's a heading that probably says the prodigal son. But when we read the story, we learn that there is not merely one son, there are two sons. So maybe it's better to call this the prodigal sons, because both sons, in a way, exemplify lostness, but from different angles. 
And we want to look at this story today to examine not someone we know, though my hunch is as I'm talking and sharing the story, you might think of someone you know, but the hope is that you would think of you. And like a mirror, this story would reflect what's in your heart as my hunch is the younger and the older brother are exemplified all over this room this morning and even behind the camera as people from all over the world engage with what Jesus teaches today. Let's set up the context, which I think is so important to why Jesus told the story, and it's found in Luke 15. If you don't have a Bible, we're gonna have the words on the screen. If you brought a Bible, and we encourage people at Johnson Ferry to bring Bibles with you, take notes, highlight things, write down things. We even have this parable a book that you can take notes in throughout the whole series. Let's look at verses one and two of Luke 15 as it sets the context for why Jesus is telling this parable. And if you're physically able to do so, would you stand together and let me read for you verses one and two of Luke 15. Of course, setting it up, the crowds love to hear Jesus for different reasons. He taught different than other people. Of course, he did miracles. Some people just wanted to see the show, the spectacle. Other people were drawn to him, even in faith. And he attracted different types of people. That's exemplified here. Let's, let's read what happens, verse one. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Father, as we open up this familiar story today, I pray that you would speak to us as ones having fresh ears to hear what you want us to hear, eyes to see what you want us to see, and hearts open to do what you want us to do with this word. Father, would your voice be the loudest in our ears this morning as we are listening? And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you may have a seat. In in this story, Jesus is talking to a couple different people. Like for instance, in verse two, we see that there are those complaining at what Jesus is saying and doing. They're the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were those who were originally given the task of copying the scriptures, and so they, by nature, became very familiar experts in the scriptures. The Pharisees were those known as being Bible people. They didn't use the word Bible. They had the Old Testament. But they were people of the scriptures, people that were moral, upstanding, good people. You would like the Pharisees. You would hire the Pharisees because most likely they'd be your best employees, committed to ethics and doing the right thing and the scriptures, but they completely missed that all the scriptures were pointing to Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of God's word. And they're complaining, and they're complaining that Jesus is receiving sinners and eating with them. After all, if you are the Messiah as you say you are, now of course they would never give him that credit, but even if you are, why as the holy God of the world would you associate yourself with such unholy people like tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors were 
people that grew up Jewish, at least in the scriptures when we hear about tax collectors like Zacchaeus. They were Jewish men who would grow up and start working for the Roman government. And if Rome said the taxes were to be this percentage, they would often raise it to another percentage and skim off the top. So they were seen as a way of, in a way of being traitors to Israel. How could you take advantage financially of your brothers and sisters in Israel? Traitors working for the enemy. Those were the tax collectors. The sinners, well, just use your imagination. I don't know, when you think about what a sin is, think about the, the worst possible area that someone could sin that might offend you, and, and that's the sinners. And Jesus is not only eating with them, but he's receiving them. The word receive is this active word. It means to search for, to anticipate, to, to actively look for. I, I think about, I, I love those videos where the, the military guy comes home and surprises his kids. I, I cry every stinking time. You know what I'm talking about, those videos? I love those things. But, but the normal way in which someone who's been deployed, whether it's a man or a woman, comes home is their families usually get a notice. And so their families, the day of, they're, they're looking in the sky and they're waiting for that plane to arrive. And then they're probably ushered in some kind of hangar where the plane will then deboard. And, and there their spouse gets off the plane and everyone's crying. They've been waiting, looking for, and Jesus is waiting and looking for tax collectors and sinners. See, here's what Jesus wants to communicate. And he's gonna do this throughout Luke 15 and 16 in a couple different ways. But here is a big idea, if you will, that I think is so central to this story today and many of the stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 and 16. And it is this principle. Our heavenly father rejoices when his children repent of their sin and come home. Our Heavenly Father rejoices when his children repent of their sin and they come home. Jesus tells stories like this. There's a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep. He loses one of the sheep and he searches for the sheep and he finds the sheep and you know what he does? He throws a party. When's the last time you threw a party for a sheep? Anybody here? He tells a story about about a lady who loses this valuable coin and she turns up the couches and she, she finally finds the coin and when she finds it, she throws a party. You see the theme here? Something's lost, something's pursued and then we throw a party and Jesus is gonna tell a story about two boys and the theme is this loving, sufficient father who throws a party when his children repent and they come home. So let's look at the younger brother, and then we'll look at the older brother. And really, I want you to look at you throughout this whole story. The younger brother, we'll look in verses 11 through 16 of Luke 15. Jesus tells a story. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate in wild living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and so he began doing without. So he went and hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating, and no one was giving him anything. In those days, it was common practice that when a man would die, two-thirds of his estate would go to his oldest male child, and the rest of his estate would be divided amongst the rest of the male children. Now, Jesus is telling a story, and in his story, there's this younger son who comes up to the father and asks for his inheritance. Now, unless you think he's merely just asking for a future advance on money, in that honor and shame culture, this is a way of him saying, Dad, you are dead to me. All I want you for in this moment is your money. And in the story, the father gives the money. We We assume he gives it at that point to both sons, the two-thirds to the older son, the one-third to the younger son. And the son takes that money, and he goes off in a distant place. We're not told where. I imagine it was a city somewhere. Don't you know he got tired of living on the farm, under his dad's rules, under his dad's commands, under his dad's structure? he's, He's ready to go out on his own. What's he, 17, 18 years old? We don't know. But he goes to, to a distant country, and Jesus sums up his lifestyle by saying that he squandered his estate on wild living, wasteful living. We're not told what he did, but we can imagine what he did. And and he reminds us of a lot of us when we were that age. There is something about a youthful idealism that's tired of your family's rules, that's tired of the structure. And, And you think what we all think that, that we can do it better on our own than in the house of our father. And so he wishes his father dead, takes his money, goes to the city, and, and he's living out what so many of us have, this, this idea that we are the ones determining our future. We are the ones determining our success. We are the ones shaping things to come. It reminds me of a very familiar poem that maybe you've heard. It's often quoted in our secular age, Invictus. And it's got this line in it, I memorized this years ago. It says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. A lot of people live like that, don't they? This boy is sinning. He's fulfilling his lustful desires. He's fulfilling his worldly materialistic desires. And you know why he sins? The same reason that I sin and you sin. You know what it is? It's fun. Isn't it? I mean, I mean, it's why do we sin? Because it's fun. And for a while it feels so free. He's got money, he's got status, he's got he's got travel plans, he's finally away from his father, and oh, it feels so good to finally be on my own. And it's it's like it's like jumping out of an airplane and it feels so free to soar into, into the sky until you realize you don't have a pack. And at some point, as good as it feels, everyone hits the ground. A lot of us are like the younger brother, aren't we? Squandering everything we have. I see it all the time. I see it in church. I see kids who grew up here, John's Ferry. Good kids, good families, say they love Jesus, get to college, jump out of an airplane. You know why? Because it's fun. And here's the thing. Satan, Satan is... 
he's not very creative, but he is very consistent. And here's what Satan loves to do in your life and mine. He loves to convince you that the temporary pleasures of sin is more satisfying than you trusting and obeying your heavenly father. He does that to every single person in this room. He does that to me. He tries to to tempt us, do this thing. That's where satisfaction is. That's where pleasure is. And this boy realized that everyone eventually hits the ground. And not only does he run out of money, but then a severe famine comes. And so he has to do what no good standing Jewish boy would do. He has to hire himself out, not to anybody, but to someone who keeps pigs. Now see, when Jesus was telling that story, all of a sudden, the Pharisees are going, pigs. And that's because in the Old Covenant, pigs were unclean. You couldn't eat a pig if you were Jewish. Now, I gotta be honest, I'm grateful for the New Covenant for many reasons. Bacon is near the top of the list, amen? I'm grateful that now all animals are clean in the name of Jesus, amen? But back in the day, you couldn't eat a pig, and here we got this Jewish boy that is now working for some Gentile, feeding pigs, longing for the food of pigs when the famine comes. I wonder if the tax collectors were thinking, is he, is he talking about us? And then in verse 16, it says something that I found is so true for so many people trapped in sin. No one was giving him anything. I, I made a serious turn towards Christ when I was 20 years old. I say that I became a Christian when I was 10 because as much as a 10-year-old could understand why Christ died on the cross, I understood that. I exhibited the faith of a 10-year-old to believe in that. But I do remember at 20 years of age, after I had kind of partied for several years and made a lot of destructive decisions, a turning back to Christ. And, and I just remember surrendering to him in, in, some, in, in a real special way. And I also remember that when I made that turn to Christ, I felt so alone. It's amazing how everyone who likes to party is with you as long as you're partying, but when you stop partying, they're gone. This boy was alone. No one's there to help him. And so he, he does something that I think is so important for us to understand. He repents. That, that word's not in the text, but that's what he does. And as I told you, our Heavenly Father rejoices when his children repent of their sin and come back home. Let's look at what he does. Verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired laborers have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here from hunger. I'll set out and go to my father and we'll say to him, and here's this this little speech. I'm sure he's been practicing this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, Treat me as one of your hired laborers. I mean, that's what he's thinking, right? I mean, the hired laborers are like the lowest of the low. I'm not a son. Treat me as a hired laborer. So that was his plan. So he set out and he came to his father. In many ways, what this boy is doing is is, is just showing us this is what repentance looks like. Repentance is is a churchy word, and the Bible talks about repentance. Jesus preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Repentance is all over the New Testament. Repentance is often coupled with faith. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of mind about three different things. 
about the Savior, about the self, and about sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, that there are two types of sorrows, worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Every single human at some point experiences worldly sorrow. You, you went down this path, it led to a lot of bad decisions, a lot of regrets, and you're like, man, how could I have done that? I feel terrible that I hurt your feelings, or I made this mistake, or I lost my job, or I lost all our money. Worldly sorrow, and it leads to regret. Every human experiences regret. That's not the same thing as repentance. Godly sorrow, when you, when you turn from your way and back to God, that is called repentance, and it produces a godly sorrow that leads to a repentance without regret. You see, when you're going this way and you turn and have a change of mind, you change your mind about the Savior. Jesus is not merely just something that happened 2,000 years ago. He is the sole satisfying person in your life. I remember thinking about Jesus for the first time. Jesus, you're everything. You, you, you change your mind about yourself. You no longer see yourself as a, you know, a good person that can just figure this out on your own, through your own power. No, you, you realize, I, I, I need help. Sin, you see the severity of your sin. I think this boy exemplifies repentance because he's coming saying, I, I'm no longer a son. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Would you please accept me and see what he doesn't know? What he doesn't know is our Heavenly Father throws a party when his children repent and they come back home. Note what the Father does. Verse 20. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've, his speech, right? I've, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, quickly, bring, 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 out, bring out the best robe and put it on him. After all, you stink, son. But let's, let's get the best robes. Put it, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. I wonder if it was the father's ring. <laughs> Slaves don't wear the father's ring. Sons wear the father's ring. Put a, put a ring on him. Put sandals on his feet. You know the fattened calf we've been saving for that special day? This is the day. Slaughter the calf and let's eat. Let's celebrate. Let's throw a party. Why? For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I love this father's undignified, lavish, intentional love of his son. He's waiting for him. He's looking for him. Like Jesus received the tax collectors and the sinners. The father in the story is looking for his son. And he sees the son. And instead of waiting the son to run to him or to grovel to him, I mean, that's what a dignified father would do, right? I mean, you, you shame me. You embarrass me in front of my friends. You took all my money. You owe me. That's what a worldly, godless father would think. No, no, it's not this father. And he, he runs to him. This dignified man running to his son, embraces his son, kisses his son, and throws a party for his son. And his son goes to his little speech, and it's almost like the father kind of cuts him off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. And Jesus knew that he would one day die for our sins and rise from the grave because this son of his was dead. 
but now he's alive again. Your heavenly father rejoices when you repent of your sin and you come home. You come home. I think there's a lot of people who think that they've done something so bad. They've made so many mistakes. That, that, that they've done something so sinful that God would say, I'm done with you. But the amazing grace of God is that he can take any sin that we've committed and he can forgive us of that sin and renew us and sanctify us and change us. You don't, you don't believe me, you don't have to. I mean, listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. I love this verse. He's getting on to this church because they're suing one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ should not be suing one another, yet that's what they were doing here in 1 Corinthians 6. And in a way of warning them, but also comforting them, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he goes through a list of, you know, just sins. And these aren't the only ones, but just listen to these. It's like our world today. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this. Such were some of you. Those are the people that make up the church. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I love this, that no matter what sin you commit, the only exception I'm about to say is the sin of, of unbelief, rejecting the grace of God. Just go through his list. Are you sexually immoral? Guess what? If you repent of your sin, God will wash you, change you, justify you, and welcome you back home. Homosexual, that's been the news lately. Guess what? If you'll repent of your sin, he will wash you, sanctify you, justify you, and welcome you back home. Are you verbally abusive with your language? Are you habitually drunk and just go down the list? God's sufficient, sustaining work of the Holy Spirit can take whatever sin you've committed, and if you repent of that sin and come back to him, he says, come on home. And what's so great about our Heavenly Father is that our Heavenly Father rejoices, he rejoices when his children repent and they come back home. I think there's a lot of running younger brothers in this room who need to come back home. Come back to your father who loves you. Come back to your father who wants to embrace you and kiss you and welcome you. And there are people who don't. That's one reason that we have a support group ministry at Johnson Ferry, and it's a growing one. We have a number of people that are asking for support groups. And you can either go online to the hub, or I think there's one mentioned in the welcome guide today. Two in particular, we have one called Parents of Prodigals. And uh, let me get these names right. We also have one called Hearts of Hope. Uh, One deals with prodigal children. One deals with family members of those in the LGBT community. And how do we, uh, in the name of the gospel, both love, but also point them to the only one who can wash, change, sanctify, and forgive, named Jesus. The younger son. (laughs) I wonder what the Pharisees are thinking at this point. 
Well, Jesus, leaving little room for doubt, then talks about the older son. And if the younger son is a way of him talking about the tax collectors and the sinners, the older son, of course, is a way of him talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. And notice how he ends the story. In verse 25, he wraps it up and says this. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, what, 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 what could these things be? And he said to him, oh, your brother has come, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, angry. He didn't rejoice, he became angry. And he was not willing to go in. Interesting that the younger son wants to leave the house, the older son doesn't want to come in the house. He didn't want to come in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. Here we go, the lavish love of God, taking the first step. And he said to his father, look, for so many years, I have been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, and you never gave me, you never gave me a young goat so that, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was, he's, he's devoured your wealth with prostitutes. By the way, he doesn't know that. He hadn't talked to his brother in years. That's what he assumes. What do you do? You slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Let me just pause there before we go to this amazing response by the father. I think, I think that pharisaical spirit is in a lot of us. Interesting the way he talked about his dad. I've kept your commands. I've served you. I've never wasted your resources. Wouldn't it break your heart if your child came up to you and talked to you like that as a father, talking to you like you're their boss instead of their father? And, and there's a lot of that pharisaical spirit in all of us. We, we, we love to get, we don't love to give. We, we like the special treatment when we get it. We don't love to give the special treatment to others. I mean, just practical, the other day I'm on the phone. We're renewing this home warranty that you know, we've kept on our house to use for different things. And, and, the, and the price keeps going up every single year. It's amazing how I, just, I finally asked him this year, I mean, where is the top end of this thing? Why does this thing keep going up every single year? You know, when I was a new customer, I got this rate, but now I've been with you guys for a couple of years. Now I'm getting this rate. I'm thinking, that's not fair. Y'all aren't with me, but that's not fair. I mean, how come, amen, how come they're getting a deal I'm not getting? I remember, you know, when I got, how come I don't get, how come my rate keeps going up every year? And then she said, well, sir, you're not a new customer. Interesting how when I was a new customer, I loved that new rate. Now I've been there a while, started to take it for granted. In fact, feel a little bit entitled. The father looks at his son. And he reminds him, I love the tender compassion of Jesus here. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And the story ends. The question is, what, what happened to the younger brother? 
I mean, after the party, what, what, what did he do next? Did he stay at home and learn the error of his ways and follow? We don't know. What about the older brother? Did he, did he repent and come in the house and realize his entitlement? We don't know. So maybe the question isn't, what did the younger, the older brother do? Maybe the real question is, what, what about you? What are you gonna do? See, maybe you're a younger brother and you're running from the Lord right now and you're trapped in sin and you're trying to fake it with everybody else and maybe you are faking it with everybody else, but God sees you. And it feels good to jump out of the airplane, but I promise you, you will one day hit the ground if you don't repent. And yet, there's also a lot of young, older brothers in here. And when you look at other sinners, you look at them with disgust instead of compassion. Failing to remember that God accepted you in your disgusting state. So the question isn't about the older brother or younger brother. The question is really about you. What are you going to do? Our Heavenly Father rejoices when his children repent of their sin and they come back home. It's time to come back home. I'd like for us to pray today. We're gonna take just three, four minutes to do this. Not for, not for long, please nobody leave. There's two things I want us to pray through. I'll put them on the screen. One is that for many of you are gonna need to ask God, in what ways am I like the younger son? What if I just learned about the younger son and that's me? How do I need to repent? For some of you, it's the second one. God, how am I like the older son? The way I view people? How do I need to repent? I don't know what God's gonna say to you, but I do know that he loves you and he rejoices when you repent and you come back home. Why don't you talk to your dad? Father in heaven, I come to you right now and just pray, Lord, that in this moment you would hear from your children who are crying out to you, God. Lord, you know everyone in this room. You know what they're dealing with. You know the sins they're committing. You know the struggles they're facing. And God, you long for them to come home. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us. Would your voice be the loudest in our ears as we now have a time of repentance? Saying, God, Dad, I need your help. So hear us now as we talk to you. heaven, 
we thank you for the grace that's found in Jesus Christ, for the full forgiveness of sin that was given to us through the sacrificial, atoning death and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, that if anyone here would repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in you, they could be saved, they could come back home. Lord, I I wonder, God, and I trust that someone in this room needs to be saved today. They need to say yes to Jesus and, and realize that they were dead, but now they've been made alive. They were lost, and now they've been found. And God, would they come home today? God, there's also a lot of us that are a lot like that older brother. We condemn others. We feel entitled. And Lord, we need to have a compassion that models the compassion that you have given us in Christ. God, we're thankful for your grace. And as we often sing, it's, it's an amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Everyone here is a wretch. We're sinners that fall short of the glory of God and we need your help. And God, you are the most satisfying, soul-satisfying God. And Lord, our hearts made whole in you. So God, would we find rest in your house? Would we find rest at home with you? And God, would we come back home to you today? Because you're throwing a party and we want to be there with you. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.